0: in our Lord Jesus Christ, and welcome to Christ Church of Livingston County Teaching Ministry. The following is a sermon recently preached at Christ Church. We trust you will be edified and ministered to by the Holy Spirit through this message. Acts 18, 24 to 28. Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, The brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. Father, as we look into your word, I plead with you to bless uh, the words that come out of my mouth, that the... The studies that I've put into this would only come out of my mouth in tone and in intent and in actual words in ways that would be edifying to each and every one of us who are here. We want to be blessed by your word. We want to grow in our knowledge of you. We want to know how to live our lives and we want to know how to be a strong congregation. We want to glorify and honor you, and we want to do that by cherishing you above all things. So I ask that you bless. In Christ's name, amen. amen. First thing I want to do is we'll look at uh, the, uh, actually breaking down uh, the text, and then we'll get into uh, a larger application. Um, I've broken it down into three parts. Um, a being Apollos' qualifications in verse 24 and 25. Uh, B, orthodox and heterodox theology. And then C, a new calling. A, Apollos' qualifications. First of all, we're going to see that when Apollos comes into the scene here, we see that he's eloquent, he's competent in the scriptures, he's instructed in the way of the Lord, he's fervent in spirit, he speaks and uh, teaches accurately the things concerning Jesus, and yet he, the only apparent negative is that he only knew about the baptism of John. I want to just make sure that we understand what that really means. Eloquent, I think we all have a pretty good idea of that. He, he could speak well. He was, uh, he was one of those uh, pastors that, uh, or speakers that um, most people really enjoy listening to. He's not boring, which some people can be or not quite flowing in their talk. So he had a gift there, all right? Paul says that he wasn't very eloquent and didn't come in eloquence. So Paul didn't really boast about himself that way, but Apollos was. He was competent in the scriptures. He was well-versed in the Bible, and he knew it. He knew it well. He probably read it many, many times. It says that he was a Jew So he grew up with the knowledge around him. If he'd gotten any kind of formal training, he had probably spent considerable time in the Pentateuch, might even have it memorized. He was competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord. Today we might call it seminary trained. You know? He got some very intensive instruction. He had received good teaching. He was fervent in spirit. He had a heart after God. He desired to know God in totality. And he was passionate to tell others about what he had learned. Number five, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus. That means he knew his doctrine. He knew his theology. And he taught it accordingly. He was a biblicist first. He knew his Bible, and he wanted to teach it accurately. He was a Christ follower. He knew his Old Testament, and he knew how to relate it to Christ. He understood the difference between law and gospel, and he knew how to bring them together. Number six, he only knew the baptism of John. This appears in the list to be the only hang-up. He had still uh, things to learn, as any pastor has He always has things to learn. He can always grow. This is not a negative. What was the difference between the baptism of John and Christ's baptism? John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. Christ's baptism was a baptism of redemption and remission of sins and a reception of the Holy Spirit. So Christ's baptism, as he's going to get taught here more accurately, he's going to come into a fuller understanding of it And even today, this takes place. Many of us come to, I think, God by recognizing that we need to turn from our sin. That's what John came. He said, look, you're sinful. Look at God. Look at yourselves. Don't look at each other. And all of a sudden, we see our need. And when we see our need, we turn to God. And then we find that our only hope is in Christ. B, he began to preach. And how did he begin to preach? And I labeled it orthodox and heterodox. It says that Priscilla and Aquila saw a small flaw. Now, it's interesting. They don't tell us what that flaw was. Something wasn't right. So these two, take them aside and teach them more accurately the word of God. What? I actually think that's a good thing that the word of God doesn't tell us exactly what it was. It, it leaves it we're, we're wanting to know what was it, but we don't know. I don't think it was heresy, though. And this is why I put these two words down. You're getting, to getting two words that I, I actually had fun sharing with our congregation a couple months ago. Orthodox and heterodox. Ortho, orthodox, we've heard the word a lot of times. It means stri- ortho, means straight or correct. Dox means uh, doxology, uh, belief, teaching. All right, so you're going to have correct teaching or straight teaching. And all of us should be orthodox in our belief. We don't wanna get hung up on the word because maybe there's the Eastern Orthodox Church, just like we don't wanna get hung up on the word uh, Catholic as we even said it in what do we believe? We believe in one holy Catholic Church. Orthodox is a good word and we all want to be correct in our thinking and our teaching and our belief. Heterodox on the other, uh, other hand, hetero, this is a belief that is different from that which is correct. Now, we have lots of times within the church, heterodox teaching that goes on, and it's why I think we have denominations. One guy says, well, I'm absolutely convinced, this is what the teaching's saying, and the other person says, no, this is right. And if there's really only two views, just for the simple sake of argument, one of them's right, one of them's ortho, and one of them's hetero, all right? So that's where we have fun in dialogue and working out, uh, trying to work out these differences. So. Sometimes heterodox may describe beliefs that differ from orthodox views, but they still fall short of heresy. Heresy would be saying that Jesus is not the Son of God. That's not a hetero situation. That's a complete error that would be detrimental to the faith. So he had some he had a a slight inaccurate view, and it could have been just about the baptism issue. And Priscilla and Aquila came and they teach him more accurately. And I like that, more accurately. Not, It wasn't like he was off so severe, but they brought him back into line. The question that I thought of was, who are the Priscilla and Aquila's for us today? Who's willing to sit there and say, this is right, not this, and to show from the scriptures? Letter C. He desires to go out and preach. He gets a new calling. His brothers tell him, go for it. These brothers tell the believers that he's going to go see to trust in him and welcome him. And then at his arrival, he brings great help because of God's grace, for he comes in the power of the Holy Spirit doesn't come on his own, he comes by God's calling. This is a really simple text, okay? My wife, I always like to ask my wife afterwards, well, whenever I preach, whether it's here or whether I, um, on Sundays at, the, at our church, I always come back and say, well, what'd you think? Because I know I'll get an honest answer from my wife. It won't be just, oh, nice, nice job, Pastor. And she always tells me I'm light on application. I like to break down the text and I'm light on application. Well, today this will be my heavy application day. Because I had planned on Dirk not being here. But he's here, so this could seem awkward. But I wanted to come here and I wanted to encourage you and I wanted to challenge you. And Dirk's just gonna have to sit here and square him. So I wanted to come and say, this is what an, what this was a privilege for me to be able to preach for however long it's been here, year and a half. You were just saying, I thought, year and a half. I was like, wow, it's been a long time. I've been amazed at watching this congregation stay tight during that time. That's a long time to not be without a lead pastor. And now he's coming. And I know I'm rejoicing. I know you're rejoicing. I know our church is rejoicing because we've all been praying for the man of God's choosing. And here he comes. And I think this text fits very nicely. What I want to do is I want to point out 10 things. It was not designed to be a 10 pointer, but I found a tenth point later on about how we can look at Dirk, help Dirk out, help ourselves out as a result, and that this transition would be as smooth as possible. I really feel like I'm preaching to the choir in many ways because I think you guys are all ready for this and, and are all right. I'm going to be saying things that you're going to go, yep, 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 but it's a good reminder. So here are the 10 things that I've put together. And I want to, uh, just because I, I'm trying to always learn to, to make my points all flow together and I have a bunch of give him, give him, but I didn't have it for two. I figured it out now at the end. Give him your encouragement, number one. Encourage him in his apostolic priorities. He will need encouragement from everyone. This is not an easy position. Elders, you need to encourage him. Heads of households, you need to encourage him. Wives, you need to encourage him. You need to encourage his wife. And children, you need to encourage his children. They're young enough or they may not even be aware of it, but to simple things so everybody needs to be encouraging this household number two you will have disappointments give him realistic expectations you're human and you fail need we remind each other thus since you're human and he's human expect him to be human So when he fails, when he disappoints, I want you to never talk about him negatively behind his back. I want you to go to him. I want you to point out what what the problem is. Let's do a Matthew 18. Let's go up and say, hey, I didn't understand this. Did I miss it? Is there a communication? What's going on? Because that's going to be the way that restoration and healing go, and there won't be festering issues. But if you talk behind his back, as Proverbs 16, 28 says, a perverse man stirs up dissension. And talking behind somebody's back is just stirring up dissension. And a gossip separates close friends. So never talk behind his back. Talk to him. Number three, give him time. Free up his time. I think it's great that he's already here for two Sundays with no serious commitments this is a good beginning sermon preparation can easily take and i did a i started searching i got really lost on the on the the internet trying to find out what would be what would be classified across the board as as average sermon preparation time and as a a subtle thing was kind of 10 to 15 hours uh, you can get to john macarthur who spends four full days in sermon preparation that's 32 hours John's a little off the charts because he doesn't have to wear quite as many hats because he's got so many other pastors on staff that allows frees him up to, uh, to do just that. Dirk's going to be wearing all the hats unless you guys come along and wear some hats for him. So sermon preparation can take quite a bit of time. I think 20 hours is never enough. It doesn't matter how much time I spend. I never have enough time. So I want you to get involved. I want you to... Do the legwork and activities. If you think something should be done and you come up and say, "Why would this be okay? And Dirk says, yeah, I think that'd be great. Say, you know what? I'd like to do it. So don't go, okay, would you do this as well? Would you do this as well? Would you do this as well? You guys have done it for a year and a half. You can keep doing that because that's what the body of Christ does. Make sure that you're giving him the opportunity to fulfill his greatest duties as your spiritual leader and not your activities director. All right? He's your spiritual leader, not your activity leader. His main call is to break open the bread of life for you. And since that's his main call, I want you to give him your ear. I want you to come to church hungry. I want you to come hungry for the word. What have you got for me? What? You, tell me what you've been studying. There's a banquet table in this book of information that I can't get to on my own. As much study as I do, I've got to listen to other people who are digging in other areas. We spend 20 hours in sermon prep and we come and we deliver it in a half an hour. You get 30 minutes of 20 hours. Take advantage of it. Come hungry to find out what is in this book. Be like the Bereans who received the word of God with great eagerness. It says, now these Jews, these Bereans, were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. You will not offend Dirk if you go home and you reread the text and go, is that right? That'll be a joy to his heart for you to dig in there and then come back and say, hey, I got a question. That, that will be, that will be a, you, will, you will make him smile. Now we can't, we can't be Priscilla and Aquila if we are not daily examining the scriptures. It's our safeguard for our souls and for our pastor. Martin Luther said, When you do come hungry and ready, you will be coming only for God and not for something other than Him. This will also please your pastor. It will also prevent you from noticing the oddities of your new leader. Trust me that there will be some. Maybe maybe, maybe his accent, I didn't have a chance to listen to him. Maybe the fact that he might... He might be a Boise State Bronco fan. You know, there will be something odd about him. But if you come and you hunger for the Word of God, you will not complain about the platter on which it is served. Number five, give him your voice. One former pastor, in preparing his congregation for the next pastor who was to come, said the following. If you, are, if you find that you are being taught and challenged from the Word, don't worry about his sense of fashion, the way his voice sounds, or whether or not he has completed your to-do list. Indeed, far from complaining about these other things, let him know how your soul has been blessed by his labors. Let him know the benefit you receive from his teaching. The great Apostle Paul, when considering the weightiness of the work of preaching, said, Who is adequate for these things? (laughs) Nobody. As Paul sensed his inadequacy for the task, so any man who takes this calling seriously will feel and feel often the weight of his own inadequacies. Man, that is so true. It doesn't matter how hard we prep, how hard we work, we go home and we just go, there is no way I can do this. Why, Why in the world would God call me? It is a humbling position. The quote goes on, he needs to know if the work of God is prospering in your hand. The greatest complaint, or the greatest compliment that you can give to him, the greatest compliment is not, "Boy, that that was that was that sounded nice," or, but to say to him, "That was a faithful rendition of the text. You were being faithful to the Word of God." Number six, give him your prayers. Paul often asked the churches to pray for him. So in Second Thessalonians three one to two, he wrote. Finally, brothers, pray for us that the word of the Lord will spread rapidly and be honored, and that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men. Now on the subject of prayer, Gardner Spring, an early American minister from 1810 to 1873, said the following regarding praying for our pastor. Let the thought sink deep into the heart of every church that their minister will be very much such a minister as their prayers may make him. If nothing short of omnipotent grace can make a Christian, nothing less than this can make a faithful and successful minister of the gospel. If a people are looking for rich sermons from their minister, their prayers must supply him with the needed material. If they seek for faithful sermons, their prayers must urge him by a full and uncompromising manifestation of the truth to commend himself to every man's conscience in the sight of God. If God's people are going to expect powerful and successful sermons, their prayers must make him a blessing to the souls of men. Oh, it is at a fearful expense that ministers are ever allowed to enter the pulpit without being preceded, accompanied, and followed by the earnest prayers of the churches. Gardner goes on to say, Though little seen and less appreciated, those who help bear the pastoral burden through prayer are surely the most important co-workers any spiritual leader could ever have. Well, if he's right, that's our job. Pray for your pastor. Pray for your elders. Pray for one another. Your pastor will meet your prayers as much as you will meet his. Number seven, give him your respect. We read Hebrews 13, 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them. That can sound a little, little heavy-handed. In fact, I remember at a pastor's conference, uh, it was at the Together for the Gospel conference, uh, one of the, um, these were mature men who'd been in the pulpit most, most of their lives, 25 to 40 years, and they said, what do you, what do, you do with the Hebrews passage when you come to Hebrews 13, especially if you're a young pastor? And their advice, which I'll pass on to Dirk, was don't ever preach from Hebrews until you've been there for a little while, because when you come to 13, It's a little difficult to sit there and say, obey me, okay? Because it's like you haven't earned it. But I'm not your pastor. And so I can remind you that it's not inappropriate for me to tell you that this is what the scripture says. Obey and submit. And submit, according to the Amplified Version, I like this, continually recognize that God has given him this authority over you. So obey your leaders and continually recognizing that God has given this authority over you for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. That's it. There's a sub-application here. Dads, we have to give an account for how we lead our family. We're the ones that are responsible. Pastor is responsible for giving an account over leading us. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. So give him your respect. Number eight, give him your heart. Love him and love his family. And why? this think going would be easy. But like I said, they're going to be different. Just as you guys are different... You know, we, we all say we're Michiganders, but it doesn't take us to go somewhere from the city, somewhere from the country, somewhere here, some of that. We all do something quirky, odd, and like I said, he, he might be a Boise State Bronco fan, and that really might cause problems. They're different, you're different, we're all different. Let that be a joy as we see the uniqueness of how God brings together the body of Christ. Give him your heart. Love the family. Number nine, give them your support. My um, my grandmother retired to a place called Shell Point Village down in Fort Myers, Florida, uh, back in the uh, 70s. And uh, she spent just over 30 years there. And she was fine, but my grandfather needed extra attention. So they went to a retirement village in which they had a basically a little mini hospital there. And it was on a little man-made island. Out in Fort Myers area, in which it was probably, I think, a square acre or a square uh, square mile, and uh, they had hundreds of people that lived there. And so my grandmother realized, well, there's a lot of people that need a lot of help, and uh, they need volunteer support in the at the hospital. So she would go in, and she put in hours after hours. And I remember early on, she was awarded with twenty thousand hours of volunteer work. And she still served like ten, at least ten years after that. I don't know what the grand total came to, but I, I tried to do the math one time, and it came really just short of forty thousand volunteer hours, which is a lot of volunteer time. And I said to her one time, I said, "Grandma, that's it, like why or something." Like, I was just a young kid. And she said, "Well, I, I thought about charging them, but I realized that they just simply couldn't afford what I was worth. <laughs> so she said, I decided to give it for free. Now." When you consider all that your pastor does and the eternal significance of it, you can never pay for it. No matter what we support him with, it's, it's priceless. The goal of financial support, and I know you are all aware of this, is for the church to remove any the many temporal concerns, as many as possible, so that he can be freed up to do his amazing work. What this looks like in particulars always varies from church to church, and I'm sure that your intentions to do this will come to fruit. Ultimately, it is the spirit that you give it in that counts the most. So give him your support. Number 10, remember his greatest role as your pastor. Help him fulfill his calling. He must be allowed to preach with all authority. That means he can get in your face. I want my pastor back at Tyrone to get in my face. We, we joke, he speaks from the pulpit quite a bit, and I guess I do hear sometimes. I try to get a little bit more creative back at Tyrone, but when he steps outside of the pulpit, we all get a little, oh, and, he start, and he'll get it. He'll, he's, he's energized, but it's because of his view of how to stand behind the pulpit it gives him. This is like this is the word of God. Okay, this is me. But when he comes in and he starts giving it, that's important. I'm not saying Dirk has to go outside of the pulpit range. What I'm saying is, let him get in your face. Let him say, no, this is the way to go. He has to have that. You have to let him be that, because that's where you're going to be challenged and that's where you're going to grow. And he must be allowed to preach the whole counsel of God. Now, what you want to hear? He's in prayer, pleading with God, tell me what to say. Tell me what to bring to the congregation. So let him preach with all authority and let him preach the whole counsel of God. I'm going to conclude with a quote from Dorothy Sayers. I thought this quote was great because Dorothy Sayers, I didn't know much about her until I was listening to the White Horse Inn the other day, and they quoted from her. She was a a writer in the early 1900s, actually late 1800s, early 1900s in England. And uh, she was a Christian who, when she spoke, she spoke her mind, and it didn't matter what anybody else thought. She didn't care whose feathers she ruffled. And I like this quote, and I think it speaks to speaking the word of God with authority. Let us in heaven's name drag out the divine drama from under the dreadful accumulation of slipshod thinking and trashy sentiment heaped upon it, and set it on an open stage to startle the world into some sort of vigorous reaction. If the pious are the first to be shocked, so much worse for the pious. Others will pass into the kingdom of heaven before them. If all men are offended because of Christ, let them be offended. But where is the sense of their being offended at something that is not Christ and is nothing like him? We do him singularly little honor by watering down his personality till it could not offend even a fly. Surely it is not the business of the church to adapt Christ to men, but to adapt men to Christ. It is the dogma that is the drama. And dogma just means doctrine or teaching. It is the dogma that is the drama, not beautiful phrases, nor comforting sentiments, nor vague aspirations of loving kindness and moral uplift, nor the promise of something nice after death, but the terrifying assertion that the same God who made the world, lived in the world, and passed through the grave and gate of death, show that to the heathen. And they may not believe it, but at least they will realize realize that Here is something that one might be glad to believe. My hope and prayer is that Dirk will come and preach and preach everything God tells him to preach. And you will be coming so hungry that you are just waiting to hear the word of God and to go home changed. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this sermon that was recently preached at Christ Church of Livingston County. If you would like further information about anything in this message, the Bible, about Christ Church of Livingston County, or wish to make any other related inquiry, please feel free to contact us through our website, ChristKirkMI.com That's C-H-R-I-S-T-K-I-R-K-M-I.com Again, thank you and blessings.